Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. And this week we read Parshat Emor, which is one of those great Parshas that has a bajillion things going on in it. And there's rules about Kohanim, and then there's rules about the holidays and lots of good stuff. And then at the end, we have a little story. And I love stories in the Tanakh, but this one is especially, I think, significant because it's only one of two narratives in the entire book of Vayikra. Vayikra is all laws except for the story of Nadzav and Avihu and then the story that we read today. And so the story that we read today is about a man who does not have a name and is referred to by people who discuss the story as either the Megadef or the Mikalel, either the blasphemer or the cursor. So I tend to just refer to him as the Megadef, and so that's what um, I'll probably end up saying throughout our studies together today. So let's just talk about the story for a minute. This is in Vayikra chapter 24, verses 10 to 23. So out of nowhere, we're told that Vayetze came out, Ben Isha Yisraelit, Vehu Ben Ish Mitzri, Betoch Bene Israel. So there came out a man whose mother was Israelite and whose father was Egyptian. Now, that already might pique our interest because even though it seems obvious once you think about it, that of course there were Israelite women who had children with Egyptians, a part of, as Wendy Zeeler points out in her writings, part of slavery meant often means, usually means rape as well. Um, And that it's sort of inevitable that amongst the Israelites, there would be Israelite women who had children with Egyptian fathers. But that's not something that we really actually see addressed head on in the text, other than this particular situation. So we're told now there's a guy amongst the Israelites, but his mom was Israelite and his father is Egyptian, and a fight broke out in the camp between this guy and a different Israelite. So it doesn't tell us what they were fighting about, but we presume a full Israelite is fighting with this this person who has the Egyptian father. And then what happens? This guy with the Egyptian father, who incidentally is referred to not as the son of the Egyptian father, but the son of the Israelite woman. So he pronounced the name of God in blasphemy. So uh, it's uh, So there's two words used to refer to what he did. Um, the first is which means basically to curse. And then the, the, that's the second one. And then the first one is um, which uh, Rabbi Ethan Tucker brilliantly pointed out a few years ago in the Dvar Torah, comes for the word to, to pierce, to make a hole. Like he, he sort of took a uh, community and pierced a hole in it through what he did, because what he did was so egregious, which is to pronounce God's name in blasphemy. And the reaction is that he's brought to Moshe and placed in Mishmar, translated by the JPS as placed in custody, until they're going to know from God what should be made, what the decision is, right? What to do with this guy. So it's like they can tell that he's done something significantly wrong, but yet at this point in the Torah, blaspheming God has not been explicitly articulated as being a crime. And so God first has to communicate what we're supposed to do with this guy. And then God speaks to Moshe and says, take this blasphemer outside the camp 
let all who were within hearing lay their hands upon his head, and then the whole community will stone him. And then that's what happens. And then interestingly, God continues before that actually happens as part of the commandment, right? Let everyone stone him and then tell the Israelites, by the way, anyone who blasphemes God is guilty. And if you also pronounce the special name of God, they'll be put to death. And that's going to be true whether they're a Ger or an Ezrach, whether they're a stranger or a citizen. So this story is short. And every time I read it, I sort of take a different perspective on it, or I see it in new ways that I hadn't seen it before. It's so um, it's so vague, right? We don't know what he, they're fighting about. We can't really imagine what the story of this guy's life has been. We can't imagine what led him to to curse God in this way, uh, to deserve the death penalty. I mean, it's it's a gruesome image that they're all putting him to death. This really. Um, only happens one other time with the Mekosheh with the man um, in Parshat Shlach, who they find bundling sticks on Shabbos. And again, similarly, they take him into custody and wait what God says. And then God says, okay, you have to all, um, you have to kill him. So this is stark. Um, so it's both mysterious and also very mysterious and very serious, I guess I should say. And yeah. And so we, there are going to be different rabbinic interpretations of what exactly happened. And today I wanted to focus just on one midrash that some of us may have heard um, from Vayikra Rava. Uh, it's quoted in Rashi and in other places as well. And I just want to think about it for a minute and use it as a way to, to frame one possible interpretation of this story. Okay. So it comments on Vayetzi, right? He came out. And the midrash explains he, meaning the Megadeth, he came to pitch his tent in the camp of the tribe of Dan. Now, why is that significant? Because his mother's name, as the Psukim tell us, is Shlomit Bat Dibri Lemate Dan. Right? So his mother is Shlomit, the daughter of Dibri from Dan. Right? So he comes out and he is trying to set up his camp in the camp of the tribe of Dan. That makes sense. But according to Midrash, they, meaning the, the Dan, the Danites, they said to him, what is your right to pitch your tent in the camp of the tribe of Dan? He, the Megadeth, replied to them, well, I'm one of the sons of the tribe of Dan. He is, that's his mother. But they said to him, ah, but it's written in the Torah. This is in Numbers 2.2. Each man at his banner by signs to the house of their father and not to the house of his mother. So they basically say to him, but wait a minute, we follow the father and not the mother. So we don't care that your mother is from Dun. And so continues this Midrash, therefore the Megadeth, he entered the court of Moses. So he takes the case to court, but Moses finds him guilty, Mechuyaf, right? He, he doesn't win his case. And so then says the Midrash, this man got up and he blasphemed. Now, this is a very interesting midrash because it really dives into the significance of this man's identity. It explains, it could have just been that two Israelites were fighting and this happened, right? Why does the, why does the Torah specify that he's got this um, Israelite mother and Egyptian father? And so this midrash is saying, ah, here's the reason. Here's how that caused the fight in the first place. 
And it's really interesting because when you read this story, it arouses a tremendous amount of empathy for this man. He is trying to fit in. And so he's saying, okay, well, my dad's Egyptian. And yeah, normally we follow the tribe of the father. But in this case, I may as well just follow the tribe of my mother because she's an Israelite. Right? He's trying to find a compromise and to fit in and to establish his place in the Israelite community. And so what do we make of the response of the Danites to him? It's pretty awful because they're saying, follow your dad, right? We don't have to accommodate you. You should go according to your father. Well, he doesn't have a tribe of his father. And they presumably know that. And so really what they're doing is relying on a technicality to ban him from their part of the community and then leave him on his own. He's basically literally in no man's land, right? He's got nowhere to go and he's just stuck. And then I think what we can ask, what a lot of how, well, I should say it first, how a lot of people interpret this part of the Midrash is that it's a condemnation of what Don did, but really not to pick on Don specifically, but to say the Israelites failed in this respect. They weren't welcoming to him, which is an important point because it's emphasized a lot in this part of Vayikra that the same law applies to the Ger and to the Ezrach, to the stranger and to the citizen. We're told that you, whenever you have a society, you need to welcome the people who come from outside, who don't have the familial grounding the same way that you welcome those of you who are part of your nation. And here, total opposite, right? This is a failure. And I'm not totally sure what to make about the next part of this Midrash, which is that he then went into the court of Moshe and was found guilty. Is this a condemnation of the Megadeth or is this a condemnation of Moshe's court? Right? Are we saying that not only did the people of Dun fail to understand what their role could be in welcoming this man, or is it also that Moshe failed as well? Right? Is was it really fair that this man was found? I don't know if it's right to say guilty, but that he's found. Yeah, he doesn't have a place in the tribe of Dun to set up tent. But it's definitely saying that he only got up and blasphemed God once these things happened. And so I do think that this story, especially when read with this Midrash, really does leave us with a, conclu a conclusion that we don't really know how to draw. Are we dumping the blame on the people and saying this is a story that demonstrates a societal failure? Or are we dumping it on this guy and saying this is what happens when Egyptian blood enters your community? Right, that even though he had a, an Israelite mother, his father was Egyptian, and that somehow tainted him and you know, sort of made him a bad guy, the way that people wrongly stereotype a lot in these circumstances, right? And say, well, he's not a pure blood, so therefore he's gonna contaminate the congregation. Here's how he did it, and so everybody kill him. And it's not really, I I honestly I don't really think it's totally clear. I think you can read it in those different ways. But I do think that there is one particular part that we do have to pay careful attention to. And that is when God speaks to Moshe and says, take him outside the camp. And this important little part of that pasuk, let all who were within hearing lay their hands upon his head. And then they, the whole community stones him. 
So why do all the people who heard this have to put their hands on his head? Now, it does say elsewhere in the Torah that that someone who is um, found to be guilty um, and, and deserving of the death penalty, that it's by the hands of the witnesses first that he dies. And that that would mean that the witnesses have to like, you know, put their hands on his head and sort of, it, it's a way of perhaps transferring sin, it, you know, smicha, it's the Hebrew word, you do it to, to transmit, that's the way that you ordain people, obviously we don't do that anymore, but back back originally, um, that's how they would do it. You put The teacher would put their, his hands on the student's hand, head and then sort of transfer smicha to the next generation. And it's also what someone does when they bring a korban, when they bring a sacrifice, is you put your hands on the head of the animal and then transfer that like transfers perhaps your sins into the animal. And so I think that this is saying is that somehow the community, the people who heard him blaspheme, him heard him curse God, had to put their hands on his head to transfer that sin somehow out of themselves and to signify that they were affected by hearing it and put it back into him. But yet, even though this sounds like a condemnation of him, I actually think that when we read it carefully, it is not. And there's something important to note here, which is that, like I said, there's one other story in the Torah, in the end of Parshat Shlach with the Mekoshesh Eitzim, the guy who's bundling the sticks on Shabbos and they find him. And it's a similar thing. And then they're told, you got to put him to death. And the community has to stone him. But there's one thing missing. There's no smicha in that particular case. They don't have to put their hands on his head. And so we see that this is something more than just part of the ritual of this happening. I want to suggest that this is something unique to this case. And the Chizkuni commenting here, he says, why do they have to put their hands on his head? Why do they have to do smicha? Because Hunit Gayer, he had converted, whatever converted means at that moment, into the Israelite community. And if you look back a few verses earlier, what the Chizkuni says is that there were two ways to understand this guy. Either he was Israelite or he's Egyptian, because this is before the way that we think about Jews today was was developed legally, right? And so you've got a guy, this is back in the early beginnings of society. We don't really know if he's Israelite or Egyptian. There isn't framework given to us to understand and to contextualize who he is. And so the Chizkuni says he could either be understood as an Israelite or as an Egyptian, but he was understood perhaps as an Egyptian, but he converted, right? He himself underwent whatever kind of procedure that means. Maybe, I don't know if we're talking about something specific here, but he made himself part of the Israelite community. And you see that with this act of smicha, because as Chizkuni points out, only according to the Gemara, only Jews, if they are found, if they are sentenced to death, are put to death in this manner. If a non-Jew, if a Ben Noach is found to be guilty um, and put to death, then they're just put to death by the sword. Only Jews get the four Arba Mitot Beitim, right? The four specific um, death penalties according to, um, to the Gemara. So this is actually kind of an interesting statement then to understand with the Chizkuni and with the Midrash, saying that the community couldn't figure out who this guy was. And the tribe of Dan tried to abdicate their responsibility by saying, eh, we follow the father, not the mother. So, you know, peace out. But what the message to the people who heard this, who heard him blaspheme, the people potentially who were actually involved in this is, you may have done this and he may have committed a crime that can't be forgiven. As Rabbi Tucker points out, once he cursed God in that way, 
you pierce the fabric of the community. And even if it was in a moment of passion or whatever, even if it was justifiable, you can't just take that back, right? That's not something that can be forgiven. But still the message then to the people who heard it is, this guy might have to be put to death for what he did, but he was Jewish or Israelite. He was a member of our community. And perhaps there's a subtle rebuke here, or maybe less than subtle rebuke here of the people who tried to deny him his place. And a message that you he did wrong stuff, but you also were wrong. He, even in death, he is a full member of our community. And I think this is a powerful way to understand this story. And certainly, of course, you could spend hours on it, analyzing what this means for communities and nations to, to bring in people and to welcome and to integrate people from, from other communities. But certainly, I think a powerful message here is that when members of the dominant group just throw up their hands and say, sorry, we can't help you, or sorry, you're not one of us, the message at the end of the day is you were wrong and you have to take responsibility for that belief. And that belief has very, very serious and dire consequences on other people. Shabbat Shalom.